Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles tonight to Proverbs, Proverbs chapter number 15. We just got started in this chapter last week, and uh, so uh, we got down through verse number 6, and so tonight we pick up in verse number 7, Proverbs chapter number 15, verse number 7. We've already commented on several occasions about uh, the frequency with which uh, the Bible and especially the book of Proverbs speaks about the tongue, the words that we speak and how important, how important they are. Well, verse 7, we're right back on track on this subject. It says, The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the foolish doeth not so. Well, we know from what the Bible teaches that the wise person seeks knowledge, and uh, that's crucial. Uh, You know, we talked the other day about the fact that He's given us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these, by these, we might might, uh, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be... Ever growing, and I've been, in fact, uh, as it turns out, the last two or three weeks, uh, each Sunday hitting on that subject some way or another, that every Christian ought to be growing. And uh, my favorite definition of a backslider is when we stop growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, because we are we are backslidden when we get to that point. So we ought to always be growing, and that that demands. That demands knowledge. And whenever I talk about knowledge, I'm talking about a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, His person, His work, uh, a knowledge of God's Word. We cannot grow without it. But notice here, he's speaking here not about just gaining knowledge, but it says the lips of the wise disperse knowledge. And we need to remember that not only are we to be students, but we are to be servants as well. And, you know, it's one thing for us to come to church and open our Bibles and to study week after week. It's one thing for us to gain a knowledge of the Bible. It's another thing to do something with that knowledge. And, and, and here, the lips of the wise person will disperse that knowledge. All of us ought to be teachers over in Hebrews 5 when we... Again, the subject of spiritual maturity is coming up there because the writer says, you know, whenever the time comes that you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again. You know, the very first principles of God's Word all over again. I had a fellow come to me, a church member, several years ago. In fact, I, I hadn't been at Northway very long then, and this fellow had been there for years and years. And uh, he was telling me what a knowledgeable person he was and how in his words I'm very deep in the scriptures uh, and uh, and he said over the years they've asked me uh, on some occasions you know to teach but uh, he said you know I'm, I'm, I'm not a teacher he said uh, uh, he said I, I, unless you've got that calling to the ministry I don't believe you ought to be teaching and I reminded him that all of us ought to be teachers Every single one of us. You might not pastor a church. You might not teach a Sunday school class. 
but you need to be teaching someone. That's what making disciples is all about. And that's what our job is, that we are to disperse knowledge to those that do not have it. And certainly we're to use wisdom in doing that, uh, but nevertheless we're to get the message out. Uh, we had a, had a German fella and had actually fought in Hitler's army, and uh, old Brother Pfluger was his name. In fact, Brother Pfluger has sons in the ministry now. He's in heaven, but old Brother Pfluger uh, had boldness like nobody you've ever seen, but uh, he he was just, I mean, rough and tumble, and you go into somebody's home, and, and, and he, he wanted to do the talking, you know. He, he loved to tell folks about the Lord, but he could get so overbearing with them that, I mean, you know, uh, they never wanted to see him again. And uh, so, you know, we need to need to use knowledge. But listen, just because somebody slams the door in your face doesn't mean you ought to quit trying. Just because somebody puts up some resistance against you or just because they say, yeah, I don't want to hear it. I'm not into that religion and stuff, you know. Uh, that doesn't mean you ought to quit. Take advantage of every opportunity that you have. Now notice, on the flip side of the coin, it says, But the heart of the foolish doeth not so. I think just about everybody knows somebody that speaks often and loud and uh, and it doesn't provide any benefit whatsoever to other people. They say a lot, but there's no real content to the things that they say. Reminds me of a saying I heard somewhere years ago that, you know, if your mind should go blank, don't forget to turn off the sound. And uh, that, you know, that, that, that's pretty good advice, really, if we're not going to say something that's going to be beneficial, why, uh, because just if we keep talking without anything intelligent to say, why, it's certainly not going to be of any benefit at all. So, uh, here in this verse, we're reminded of the importance of our words. Now, let's go on to the next verse here, and it's so easy, at least for me, to just get really bogged down in one of these verses and uh, never get beyond that, but it's important that we go on. So notice in verse number 8, he says here that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord. We're getting into serious stuff now, right? I mean, it's all serious, but I mean, when you see that word abomination, your ears ought to perk up. It, uh, it's something that ought to get your attention because it's talking about something that, to put it in modern day, everyday English, just makes God want to throw up, makes God want to vomit. It's sickening to the Lord. It's vile, and it's something that God wants nothing to do with. So the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. So here is a picture of worship, and, and, and I want you to notice there are several important truths revealed in this. Number one, we see from this that wicked people worship. And notice here they're pictured as bringing sacrifices to God. And, and by the way, that's, that is what was required back during the Old Testament. So here they come bringing their sacrifices. And, and it just seems strange to me that 
these people offering the sacrifices to God are described here as being wicked people. And so you would think being wicked people, they don't care anything about God, so why worship God? Well, it shouldn't surprise us because it is an undeniable fact that there is a universal yearning to worship something. And there are people from all different walks of life in, in every corner of this earth that, that, that worship something. It might be the sun and the moon and the stars. It might be a totem pole. It could be anything whatsoever. But there's something in their culture that is held in high esteem by them. And, and the reason this is so important because it tells us that there is something missing in the lives of people. I'm talking about the natural man, those that have never known Christ as their Savior. There's something missing there. Uh, is Brother Kenneth still teaching in Ecclesiastes over in your class on Wednesday night, young men? Not. He, he went through that. Brother Kenneth and I had a talk some time ago about that. He's getting ready to start a new series and was asking me about it. And I suggested the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, most people have never realized how important that book is. That book is one of the most important in the Bible, especially for someone if you're just going to start out, let's say, witnessing to your next-door neighbor. They don't know a lot about the Bible. They don't care a lot about the Bible. But they've agreed they'll listen to you. I'm telling you, the book of Ecclesiastes is an ideal place to start because it speaks about Solomon's search for satisfaction. He's looking for something beyond self. He's looking for something that will satisfy him, and he tries everything under the sun. So this is why man is going to worship something, regardless of, regardless of who or what it is. And so the wicked do worship God. But secondly, uh, secondly, notice that the worship of the wicked, it says, is an abomination to God. Now, that means it's more than just uh, unacceptable. It means it's something that is totally repulsive to our God. We live in a day where it is not politically correct to speak this way about another person or another religion. You know, we supposedly have to be so careful, you know, that we don't criticize somebody else's religion because... You know, to quote them, well, you know, we all worship the same God. We're just trying to get there in different ways, but it's the same God. You hear politicians talk like that. You'll hear some religious leaders talk like that. A lot of folks that have the idea that, uh, that we ought to never say anything negative about some other religion. Let me tell you, right is right and wrong is wrong. And the Bible condemns in the strongest possible terms those that were guilty of teaching false doctrine. The Apostle Paul did that with great boldness. If we or uh, anybody else, you know, even an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which is preached, let him be accursed. That's like saying, let him go to hell, you know. And it wasn't that Paul didn't care, by the way. That's not the point. He's trying to emphasize the seriousness of someone perverting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, misleading people. 
And, uh, you know, the greatest enemy that we've ever had uh, are, uh, is, is religion. It, we, so many times we think about the outward persecution. And, and, you know, it's really amazing to me how a lot of folks say, yeah, I never did like those Catholics. Boy, they persecuted the Christians back when, you know. Have you ever read your history book at all? Do you realize that the Protestants, the Reformers, were just as guilty of murdering the Baptists as the Catholics were. They all hated our guts. And they hated us simply because we dared stand up and preach the truth of God's Word, and they didn't like it then, and they don't like it now. And as far as I'm concerned, that's just too bad because it's what God thinks that matters. And God says their worship, their worship is an abomination to Him. And somebody says, yeah, I know they don't have all of their T's crossed and their I's dotted. They don't have it just right. They're not really orthodox in their doctrine and what have you. But, but they are so sincere and just, you know, just, just watch them. You can see the joy in their face and they're raising their hands and they're smiling and they're so happy and, uh, that doesn't make them right, folks. It might be pleasing to man, but it's sickening to God. Now, notice the third thing about this verse. Not only do wicked people worship, and not only is the worship of the wicked an abomination to God, but it's very evident that prayer is an integral part of worship. Notice, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. And what I want you to see here is that prayer is mentioned along with sacrifices. And, you know, from the outward perspective, man's perspective, you know, we put all of the emphasis upon the outward show. In other words, we think, have a tendency, or they certainly did in that day, of thinking that the sacrifices they brought uh, was much more important than anything else they could do. And boy, you could just see them come in and they, they brought their animals in to sacrifice to God. But here the emphasis is on, on the matter of prayer. And if somebody had showed up without a sacrifice, everybody would have looked down upon them. You know, we come to church on Sunday and if, uh, we're expected to show up with our Bible, you know. We've got a copy of God's Word and we're there. We're expected to sing. But I'm afraid a lot of times we lose sight of how important prayer is in the worship of the Lord. And by the way, you can pray without leading the congregation in prayer. You can pray right where you are. You can pray before you get here. You can pray after you get here. You can pray after you leave. But we need to be praying, as I've often said, like everything depends on it because it does. Everything depends on prayer. The effectiveness of the uh, of the sermon, the effectiveness of the Sunday school teacher's lesson, the, the the music, and everything depends upon prayer. And we need to take that into consideration. Now, the fourth thing that 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 I see as I read this verse is that God delights in the prayer of the upright. Of the upright. There's no delight in the prayer or the sacrifices of those that are wicked, but God delights in the prayer of the upright. Isn't that a wonderful thought to think about you and I, uh, you know, as weak and unworthy and as sinful as we are, 
To think that we could do something that literally would delight the heart of God, something that would cause God literally to smile. I remember oh, a year or so ago preaching about uh, that verse of Scripture that talks about, you know, us causing God to sing. And, and maybe some of you remember the message uh, that God literally sings, God laughs, God is pleased, God is delighted when we do what pleases Him. And what is it? Well, He says it's the prayer of the upright. James 5.16, uh, I believe it was Brother John or someone last Sunday, or maybe last Wednesday, that's when it was, quoted this verse from James, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And it really does. Boy, I'm telling you what, you can't do anything better for somebody than to pray. So many times I'm afraid, you know, we have the attitude of the little old woman who somebody was telling her about how sick somebody was, you know, and said, uh, uh, yeah, they're, they're really sick, and I'd appreciate it if you would, you know, if you would pray for them. And she said, oh, my, has it come to that? <laughs> it should always come to that, you know. That, that, that ought to be our first order of business. Not only, not only does it provide what we need, but if nothing else, if nothing else, it delights the heart of God. Uh, I, I, you know, most of you here are parents, and uh, you, you, you know what it's like to do something that, uh, that pleases your, your spouse or pleases your children. And, and I realize a lot of times, you know, both might want more than you're able to afford. Uh, I understand that. But whenever you love somebody, it just brings a delight to your heart to do something good for them and uh, to think about your your child having enough confidence in you, enough assurance of your love that they're willing to come to you and say, you know, Daddy, I, I'd sure like to have this or that. Whether they get it or not is another thing, but it just makes you feel warm inside knowing that uh, they feel that way about you. They're confident in you, and it pleases God. Why? Well, for one thing, it's an expression of faith in God. And it'd certainly be a horrible, terrible, sinful thing for us to, you know, basically say to God, I don't have any faith in you. I'm not going to trust you. I'm sick, but I'm not going to pray. I don't trust you. Uh, You know, I don't believe you'll do what you promised. Now, verse number 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord, but he that loveth him followeth after righteousness. Now notice, we've just been talking about the worship of the wicked, but now he's talking about the way of the wicked. And so whenever we, whenever we look at this, we see why verse 8 says what it does. Because when the way of the wicked is an abomination unto the Lord, so are his religious endeavors. Uh, we cannot, somebody says, well, you know, I believe we'll just worship God as we please. You can't worship God as you please. Now, you can go through the motion and the outward show and all of that, but it has to be pleasing to God before it's acceptable to God. So it does make a difference how we worship the Lord. And then notice he speaks about the prayer of the upright and the fact that uh, uh, you know, when we think about 
praying and he says the prayer of the upright, that pleases the heart of God. And the flip side to that, the opposite of it, is the wicked. They're an abomination to God. But he that loveth him, and so those that are wicked don't. There's a contrast here. Those that are wicked are an abomination, but those that love him, notice what do they do? They follow after righteousness. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And uh, that ought to be the desire of our heart. You know, what we pursue in life, what we desire, what we go after reveals what we really are. You know, it shows what our character is. And we certainly need a whole lot more concern today about the matter of righteousness. And... uh, and You've got to be more than outward show. Verse number 10, Correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way, and he that hateth reproof shall die. Now, in verse 22 and verse number 31, both, and we're not going to read all of those, but we'll get to them. Uh, you know, the wise have no respect for instruction at all. The fools despise wisdom, and it grieves the fool whenever somebody tries to instruct them or when someone tries to correct them. Though all of us can think back to when we were kids growing up, can't we? You know, and maybe Daddy said, you know, and I bend over the bed, and he takes his belt off and about to bust your bottom and give you a spanking, and you know it's going to hurt, and... And then for Daddy to say something like, this is going to hurt me more than it does you. I, you know, I don't think any kid ever believed that. But, but I'm telling you, there is, there is something to be said for that. Uh, correction or chastisement for the child of God is not something that God does with delight. It's not something that God does in order to punish us, but rather to correct us. And every one of us, when we think back to our childhood and we think about those times that mom or dad did discipline us and we look back at that, and now we understand that was for our own good. But listen, discipline for the child of God is one thing when it comes to correction for those that are defined here as being those that that are wicked and those that forsake the way it, it, it can be a whole different ball game. Remember, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And notice how this verse closes, the last part of the verse. And he that hateth reproof shall die. I'm telling you what, God's not playing games like we think He is. Whenever we hate reproof, whenever we despise God's uh, correction, whenever we ignore God's warnings, uh, we're headed down a slippery slope and we're going to find ourselves in trouble. You know, we always talk about, you know, the law of sowing and reaping. And we're going to reap what we sow and there's no way to get around that. It's going to happen. We do things that are an abomination to God. We do those things that are wicked and unrighteous in the sight of God. And the end result, the bottom line of that is death. I mean, it's going, it's going to cost us. If if we could just see, you remember the old, uh, I forget which one it was now, and it doesn't matter, uh, the the beer advertisement that said the finest product of the brewer's art, you know, and uh, 
somebody, some preacher years ago said they need to change that and and let people know about the finished product of the brewer's art, you know, uh, what it results in. And that's the way sin is. It's deceptive. And, and here God doesn't pull any punches. He says, they shall die. Now, verse number 11, hell and destruction are before the Lord. How much more than the hearts of the children of men. Now, the word here translated hell is the Hebrew word silo that simply means the place of the departed dead. And then notice the word here, destruction. That's abagon. That's the place of the, of the destruction, the location, if you will. But both of them are used to describe that mysterious world beyond the grave, that unseen world. In verse number 3, remember what he said? The eyes of the Lord are in every place. And here's an illustration of that fact. Hell and destruction are before the Lord. Remember, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. I mean, God knows exactly what is going on there. It is ever before Him. And he says then, how much more the hearts of the children of men. Now, the point of this is simply that if God sees the secret world beyond the grave, He can certainly see into our hearts. And we can deceive each other, right? But we can never deceive God. If He knows what's going on in hell itself, the mysterious world beyond the grave, if God knows that, God knows what's going on in our hearts. So let us then never... Never think that we can sin successfully because God knows what's going on. And, and by the way, and God's going to deal with it. As Spurgeon used to say, that God never allows His children to sin successfully. And that's certainly true. Verse number 12, A scorner loveth not one that reproveth him. Well, that's almost exactly what we've seen before. They hate reproof. But notice here, it says, A scorner loveth not one that reprove him. In other words, they're going to hate us and despise us, and neither will he go unto the wise. Someone described the scorner as being conceited and arrogant, free thinkers, indifferent uh, to or skeptical of religion, and uh, too self-opinionated to be open to advice or reproof. I went to school with some people like that. I, I've, I've got relatives that are that way, by the way. And, and it doesn't make any difference how intelligent your argument is. It makes no difference how kind you are when you speak the truth. It makes no difference how truthful what you say is. There are some people that are so conceited and so uh, consumed with self they won't sit down and listen to anything you have to say. And, and you know, the most, uh, maybe, maybe the most common way to, to get around it is to simply say something uh, like, well, you know, I've got my own ideas about religion. Or I, you know, I've, I've already got my beliefs about heaven or hell. And, uh, you know, just like, you know, go away and leave me alone. I don't want to hear what you've got to say because I've already made up my mind and I'm satisfied with my gut feeling. 
that's pretty much what they're saying to you. And the, and the sad truth is they need the truth. A scorner loveth not one that reproveth him. And so mark it down. Whenever, whenever you challenge the beliefs of other people and whenever you begin to speak the truth to them, there are going to be some people that's going to demonstrate their displeasure with you. Well, let's go through one more verse here and end on a happy note. How about that? Verse 13, A merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance, <laughs> but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. Now, you know, this might be an excuse, but I hope not. Whenever we talk about a cheerful countenance, you know, that for some people, that's natural. Remember Donnie Osmond and whatever her name was, Marie, you know, and they both look like they got a smile just pasted on their face all of the time. And there are people like that. They always look happy. And then there are people like me, and I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had different people say, what's wrong? What are you mad about? And I said, I'm not mad about anything. I mean, just the way I look by nature, I, you know, it's not natural for me to, you know, to smile. And just some of us are made like that, I guess. doesn't mean I'm not happy. But you know, I, I do believe whenever you really know someone well, you can tell whether they're happy or not, can't you? And notice the point here, a merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance. Now, I, I, I'll get myself in trouble now. But Bev's not here, so I can do that. I, I've got a bit more freedom than... Uh, <laughs> uh, she might be listening. Maybe I ought to cut that off. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You better not. The, the, oh well. You know, women put a, a, a lot of emphasis on their appearance. And I, I, by the way, I'm glad. That's good. Not anything wrong with that. You thought I was going to talk about the old barn needing paint, didn't you? But I, I'm not even going to mention that. that that's getting old, isn't it? I've been hearing that for 50 years, but, but uh, you know, the fact of the matter is women want to do whatever they can with cosmetics and so forth in order to look as good as they can. Let me tell you, I don't think there's anything in all of the world that will improve a person's appearance any better than a merry heart. A merry heart. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance and there's just something you know that is attractive about that in the sense that 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 somebody comes across to to you as being well adjusted and satisfied and happy and joyful radiant that word comes to mind because you look around at the world you know and you think boy if there's anything missing in this old world it's a lack of joy Remember, Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It not only changes your appearance, it changes your ability. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And a happy heart makes a cheerful countenance. But but here, notice, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit, the spirit is broken. I don't know everything there is to know about that, but I know that it is a, it is a, 
sad thing whenever you see people, you know, that are uh, of a sorrowful heart. It's natural for all of us. Jesus wept. Whenever certain things happen, we lose a loved one, we go through a difficult time or whatever it is. There are going to be times that we're going to cry. And the Bible says there's a time to laugh and a time to cry. You know, that's fine. Not any problem with that. But if there's a difference between weeping and notice here and having the spirit broken. Having the spirit broken. And we know people like that. That they, for whatever reason... Their heart has been so overwhelmed with sorrow that their spirit is broken and they, you know, they just lose their, their love of life and there's no, no zeal and just every day is a burden to them. And I'm sure glad that the Lord can change all of that. Amen. Because we don't have to live that way, folks. The Bible talks about us having joy unspeakable and full of glory. And that's not something God has just for exceptional saints. That's not something God has just for some super saints, you know, that uh, that are head and shoulders above others. No, no. That's available for every single child of God. Joy, unspeakable, and full of glory. And you mark it down. One of, one of the warning signs that we've got a problem is whenever we lose our joy. If you can't have joy in the Lord, and the Bible says we're to rejoice always, right? On every occasion, at all times, be rejoicing in the Lord. And uh, whenever you get to where you can't, you know you've got a spiritual problem. Well, next week we'll pick up, Lord willing, with verse 14, where the heart of him that hath understanding seeketh knowledge. And we'll talk about that then. But I want to thank you for being here tonight. And pray for those that we've mentioned and all of those others that are on our prayer list. Someone gave me uh, their email address a while ago and asked to be put on that list. And if you've never done that, if you let me know, it's a very simple, easy thing for me. Whether you know you've got ten or a thousand makes no difference. You hit that send button and they all go out. And uh, I'll do my best to keep you updated on the prayer requests and announcements and things pertaining to the church. Is there anything we forgot about, an announcement that needs to be made or anything?